Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June too is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast, brought to you by Daytona, the UK's premier kart racing venue. Today's episode is called He Is the Law. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Hey, this is starting to get to be quite the habit this week, isn't it? Well, it is. We have put out a lot of content this week, but I don't think you and me have been on the same show yet. No, no, actually, except for briefly on Tuesday, I believe. Ah, people don't know about that unless they tune into the live stream, which they can do by going to YouTube and searching Missed Apex Podcast. Click subscribe and the little bell, and you'll get a notification every time we go live. This week, we are going to talk to a top UK lawyer about the Honda McLaren deal, and then Matt and I are actually going to catch up because we haven't done a show together this week, uh, and for a while, actually. And then we're going to preview Singapore and see if Mercedes are really up against it in the way everybody thinks they are. We are an independent podcast hosted by MissedApexPodcast.com. This show is safe for work. We're keeping it clean here, so you can play this with kids in the background or at work. Matt, let's bring on our subject matter expert for the week. We are joined by Peter Wright, who is the founder and managing director of Digital Law UK. Peter Wright is a solicitor and one of the UK's leading experts in data protection, cybersecurity, and social media law. Mr. Wright is a very expensive man to get hold of, but we have him here for almost free for just the price of the odd Patreon guilt trip. You can speak to Peter Wright of Digital Law. How's it going, Peter? Don't worry, the invoice is in the post for this, so no problems at all. Oh, absolutely. You've got, you got the, uh, the address to send the invoice to, yeah? Podcasting yes. shared po- internet. Um, right, we want to get inside what we think might be going on with the Honda deal. We're recording this on Thursday for the show on Sunday, and obviously we don't have a copy of the contract, 
But are there any mm. are there any conclusions we can draw from what we've heard so far from what is a very very messy relationship? Clearly, all is not well, and I think we're going to talk today as if it's a given that McLaren and Honda are parting ways. Yes. Well, I, I think, and, and first of all, I suppose I should start with a disclaimer. So. None of this is legal advice, and obviously none of us have got a contract in front of us on this. But it's almost like um, if you think of um, thinking of the Yeti, um, you know, you, you've never actually seen it, but you've seen the footprints. Uh, and in the same way here, we can sort of piece together a few things from what we've heard, from what people have said, um, and even as well, indeed, from some of the observations, um, for example, that Joe made um, in, in the last podcast. Um, where he gave a lot of really good information there based on, obviously, his conversations with people. Um, and it, it, it's interesting that, for example, that there was the Honda board meeting on Monday evening, I believe, of this week, yet there's been no official word of either a new deal with anyone else or the end of the deal with McLaren, for example. So the fact that even after all those meetings in Monza, we're still no further forward on exactly what's happening here, which just indicates, I think, a little bit of the difficulty um, on both sides between McLaren and Honda. So can we sort of back up a little bit and just say, what was the original deal with McLaren Honda? Do we do we know a lot about that? They originally signed up to a three-year deal to supply engines. It's as simple as that. What's the big deal? That contract runs out at the end of this year. No complications, surely? Well, I think with this, it was a very much seen as well. It would, would have been initially for a period of time. I think it was also seen as being a multi-year that would stretch on um, very much into the medium to long term. And I think it's interesting to look back at uh, what we know from the original relationship as far as Ron was concerned. So Ron Dennis, for example, negotiated a arrangement whereby he was able to veto Honda supplying any other team. So a few years ago when um, Red Bull had their problems with Renault um, and were wanting to, to look at negotiating with Honda, uh, Ron Dennis immediately vetoed um, any negotiation with Christian Horner, any discussions with Red Bull. So that was a total non-starter. Okay, so certainly uh, for McLaren, they had their real advantages there. So, okay, so there's an advantage. What Surely, I mean, Matt, you've always been saying that you were screaming out for Honda to have more than one team to test with. Why would it be an advantage, do you think, for them to not have Honda supply another team? Uh, it's only an advantage in that no one could do better with the Honda engine than McLaren did. In other words, at the end of the day, if you look at who's winning races, it's been Red Bull with Renault when Renault was not properly in the sport. It's been Mercedes with Mercedes. And now we're seeing Ferrari with Ferrari. What we're not seeing is things like Williams with Mercedes. And we know for a fact that as close as the teams can get and as much parity as the FIA can, you know, admittedly sometimes clumsily try and regulate into the sport. The fact of the matter is the chassis and power units being designed together gives uh, an inherent advantage to the factory team. And this is why I think Ron Dennis was insisting on uh, solo ownership of the Honda engines because they don't have the equivalent of a junior team and the rules have been changed so that you can't really have a junior team like Toro Rosso was once upon a time to Red Bull. So it's an advantage for Honda to have more data, but it's not necessarily an advantage for McLaren because what if somebody does better with that engine? Peter, I mean, why would Honda agree to a contract like that, that that tied their hands so much? Did they imagine that Ron Dennis would would let them? Did someone mess up and not realize that that was a clause? 
Uh, I, I think it's a, a symptom of what was probably a fairly one-sided negotiation that uh, in many ways favoured Honda, sorry, in many ways favoured McLaren. Um, and I think McLaren were looking at things in terms of, you know, the glory days of the late 80s, early 90s with Honda and forgetting the mid-2000s when Honda had their own team and it took them rather a long time to get anywhere. Um, you know, all those years with Jensen and Rubens and only one race win to show for it. Um and they were thinking, well, this is going to be the glory days. We get to benefit from investing in this relationship and then reaping the rewards that come out at the other end. Um, we also get hundreds of millions of dollars from Honda um, that they've poured into this. That's been McLaren's main income in the absence of any um, sponsorship um, big deals uh, in recent years to replace Vodafone. Uh, and clearly they've plugged that gap with Honda. They've made an awful lot of money out of it, had an awful lot of um, profile, you know, benefiting from the support of that manufacturer. Um, the only thing that wasn't there, of course, have been the results. Okay, then. So that does kind of explain why at the beginning of the hybrid era, everyone was going, hang on a minute, McLaren don't have a title sponsor. And everyone was saying, well, this spells disaster. I don't think people quite realized how much Honda were paying for the privilege of supplying engines to McLaren. Yes. And that's just it. Because ordinarily, you'd have a works deal with a manufacturer. And the benefit is you don't have to pay millions of pounds for those engines. Um, yet in this era when we've then got the costs of the engines um doubling trebling uh, compared to what they were um that's why again it was such a good deal so they not only had free engines but this massive subsidy uh from honda which on paper would have been fantastic um and indeed that's why it looked such a good deal when this was announced um by mclaren at the time um it's also going back to the point that as a customer clearly you're not getting anywhere in formula one at the moment i mean you look at um uh, you know, Mercedes and, and Force India, uh, sorry, Williams and Force India have not really been anywhere compared to the works teams. Uh, and Red Bull, okay, they've been showing up Renault a little bit, but they've, they're also benefiting from extra engine support from um, Mario Illion, who's making sure that, if anything, there's a little bit of magic sprinkled over the Renault engines in the back of the Red Bull um, compared to the ones that have been in the um, Renault team. Now, I'm wondering, obviously, you don't know about the contract, for example, for the Mercedes there, but... I don't know, you'd think in a fair world, they build the power units, they put them in a sealed box, and any of them could go to any team. Is that the reality of those contracts, or do they know when they're buying a Mercedes engine that they're not quite getting what the works team gets? Um, Well, I think one of the key things here as well is the benefits you get from being able to have the engine and chassis tailored together. So you've got Force India and Williams just plugging the product into the back of their chassis, whereas with um, Ferrari and Mercedes, they've been able to integrate these very complex bits of machinery um, properly into their chassis. And that's where McL- uh, McLaren tried to get that with their size zero concept, forcing um, Honda into a certain design philosophy um, that, you know, at the time they thought this is the way we really build an advantage here. It's just that um, clearly the Honda engine has never um, delivered on that promise. Um, and it's just meant that they've ended up sort of going around in circles to the point that indeed. I think they've done a few things in 2016 that were working right, yet they seem to have taken several steps backwards again this year. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Mario Illion because he was of actually great interest to uh, Red Bull when Renault were in its darkest days in terms of their relationship. However, uh, he's no longer working with Renault. He's actually working with Honda now, which is one of the interesting wrinkles that I suspect we're going to be getting to shortly uh, and just along those same lines 
I think it's it's more than that. It's the, it's the integration of the power unit into the chassis. And we, we were talking about this, but it's also the software and the coding for charging the ERS and for energy deployment. And, and there was a famously embarrassing example at Monza of the algorithm for figuring out ERS deployment, not realizing Alonso had been through or um, had been through a corner and, and therefore not giving him power when he desperately needed it. And the closer you work with the power unit manufacturer, the better you're going to be at all of these little marginal gains. And at the end of the day, the customers never get the same iteration of the engine that the manufacturer teams do. And part of the problem, and this is a regulatory one, is that perhaps the engine has become too important as a player in the overall formula. And that's certainly something that Ross Braun is going to be looking at going forward. Wait a minute, you've had your waffle cast, Matt. Was there a question in there somewhere? This isn't <laughs> trumpets time, you know. <laughs> uh, I just, well, the Mario Ilian thing came up on yeah. Tuesday. So I just, I, yes. I figured, Peter, he's a busy man. I wanted to update him on the situation. But that does also might have something to do with why Honda is starting to look like they're making progress. And the other one being, the effect of breaking of homologation. They were able to rectify their design flaw of the first two years. And am I doing it again? You're doing it again. Yeah, you're doing it again. Ask Peter questions. He's an expensive man. (laughs) Okay, um, so what we're talking about really is uh, now we're waiting for the news to announce that there is an official break, uh, aren't we, guys? Um, And and I think we're going to go with that, that it is coming. And that Honda are likely to stay in the sport. Therefore, they are talking to Toro Rosso. Is that the, the sort of likely scenario you're feeling, are you, Peter? They are breaking from Honda. They're staying. Sorry, they are breaking from McLaren. They are staying in F1. I think that seems increasingly likely. Um, what is interesting is that Honda as a, as a listed company, uh, any action that they take, they're not going to sit on it for very long and they will end up releasing it to the press. And once they've got something to say, they will end up saying it. Um, and that's why it's interesting, you know, day, hour by hour and day by day, that there's been no, um, announcements this week so far. Okay. What's interesting is when we start to think about if there is going to be a break, all contracts have to govern what happens at the end of the relationship. And it was interesting that on, um, Sky F1 on Sunday, um, Ted Kravitz said, um, that he'd heard the possibility of what if Honda end up suing McLaren over the, uh, way that the deal is now falling apart and the way this contract is coming to a conclusion. Now, all contracts end up having clauses in them called break clauses that govern what happens at the end, how they conclude. Um, so it doesn't necessarily have to end up in litigation in the courts. Uh, you could end up, they could have mediation schemes in there or arbitration. The intention being to sort things out between, you know, McLaren, this increasingly large and successful automotive uh, name in its own right, um, and Honda, one of the world's largest companies. Expect that they would have thought at the outset, what if everything gets a bit messy a few years down the line? How do we end up smoothly being able to resolve this with the minimum of fuss? Now, given that this has now been going on for several months, and we keep on getting Zach Brown in the paddock seemingly discussing things I'm very surprised that he ends up talking about publicly. Um, Can you give me an example, You can't help but think of some of that breaking down. But can you give me an example of that? I mean, yes, him and Fernando Alonso, very, very vocal, almost aggressively uh, vocal. Mm. So, A, can you give me an example of, of Zach Brown doing that without slandering yourself? Uh, and, and B, does that have any legal consequences? 
It was the fact he was almost openly talking about the fact, you know, the cat was out of the bag. He was pretty much saying in Monza, we are talking to Renault. Yes. We are talking to other manufacturers. Now, that's as good as saying, I mean, you know, we know from looking at McLaren that obviously they're going to have internally lost faith with Honda at this point. But there's one thing to be acknowledging that anyone watching the cars this year, it's been obvious from winter testing, you're going to be thinking that. You don't necessarily need the team principal to turn around in the paddock um, and start saying openly, yes, we've lost faith. Yes, we're looking elsewhere. Um, but they have done it. And I, I know that, you know, OK, this has taken three years and Honda have delivered a, a poor product um, as far as McLaren and their fans are concerned. But they've still put an awful lot of money, an awful lot of resources in this. They have, apart from the performance of the the engine, everything else in terms of their performance under this contract, the money, the resources, they've produced, they've supplied. They have not turned around and said, oh, there's a problem with the chassis. It's always been, we know it's our problem. So they could look at this and think, well, we've done everything we possibly can here. We've thrown huge resources at this, and yet we're being thrown under the bus by McLaren and by Zach. And I can imagine that they might start to get a little bit annoyed with the way that they are being treated. It's a very, very interesting point. Yes, we look at it from a sporting point of view, but from a legal point of view, unless they had clauses, you know, performance clauses in there, you're right, they've supplied the engines. Yeah, I wonder if maybe reliability might come into that equation at all, because you could say they buy engines to get them through to the end of X amount of races, and they haven't had that capability to finish races. So have McLaren got any grounds there to say you haven't delivered? Possibly. And there may indeed have been clauses saying that, you know, by year two, we expect to have scored so many points. By year three, we expect to be scoring so many podiums by such and such a race. I mean, that sort of thing is quite common when it comes to driver performance now. Um, And we know that there are driver performance clauses in the contracts for probably the majority of drivers on the grid. That's why sometimes it gets to half or two thirds of the way through a season. And sometimes then somewhat people end up getting the boot because they haven't necessarily met that. We also know reciprocally um, that sometimes drivers have escape clauses in their contracts. If the manufacturer, if the team they're racing for hasn't got them to a certain position in the championship. And I think that's thought of when it comes to Max, for example, that and Ricardo, um, he would yeah. have expected to have finished more races this year than he oh. has. Yeah, it's been bad. Unfortunately, that Ferrari seat, that second Ferrari seat, has already been, you know, been wrapped up. And I don't suppose we're going to see a romantic turnaround that sees Bottas leave Mercedes and Max Verstappen battle Hamilton for the for next year's championship. I don't suppose uh, we're going to see that at all. But from a marketing point of view, is there any argument to say that they weren't just in a sporting contract or just a contractor supplier contract? They were actually in a partnership to present this open you know, front to the world. So I was wondering, you know, are McLaren at risk of breaking that kind of thing? And is it changed at all that it's a different set of uh, management now than when the contract was signed? So there's kind of two questions there, and I think you're quite right. Certainly, I think there's been a step change with the management changing. This was Ron's deal. Mm -hmm. This was Ron's baby. This was his way of stamping his authority on the team after he'd taken control back from Martin Whitmarsh. And it's very clear that he had a certain emotional investment in this partnership that has not been shared by the new management team um, that we've seen this year. Um, Wait a minute. Sorry, Peter. I'll just interrupt you because uh, Lorenz in the chat room says, but Zach said he wanted to keep Honda in F1. Yeah, that's right. With another team. (laughs) With another team. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Sorry, you were going to answer the second part. I beg your pardon. 
No, I, I think the, the second point is I think there's a real reputational issue here. Um, you know, McLaren came back into the sport. Sorry, I keep getting this wrong, the wrong way around. Honda came back into the sport after a really embarrassing uh, departure, uh, the height of the financial crash in yeah. 2008. Uh, for those that remember, the guy who was the president of Honda at the time did a press conference in Japan where he was in tears because he had to pull Honda out of the sport. And what was the Honda team ended up being sold to Ross Braun and the management team and went on, of course, to become Braun. We know that. So McLaren end up bringing Honda back into the sport on the exclusive basis we've outlined. Honda have invested a huge amount in this. And now, we've, okay, the, the engine hasn't performed, but they've kind of been thrown under the bus, I feel, to an extent this year. They have carried the can for all the failures. Of course they have. But if we look at this being a partnership, okay, they might not have produced the best power unit in the world, but then there hasn't been the sort of, oh, we win together, lose men together mentality Certainly going on here no. either. And I, I worry about the damage this causes to McLaren in future years. If we say the way to win an F1 is you have to have a works engine deal, then what's your long-term strategy? You would want to be, presumably, with a manufacturer. So if it ain't going to be Honda, they ain't going to get a works Renault deal anytime soon with Renault having their own team. So they're going to be back in as a customer. Is yes. this a short-term stopgap? Are they going to end up wanting to bring back Porsche or um, you know, an, another name from the, from the Volkswagen group? Are we looking at other car manufacturers? But if you're another car manufacturer looking at the sport, would you want to choose McLaren as your partner based on the way that McLaren have treated Honda in the last year? Do you want Alonso driving your car and talking about it publicly on the radio? It, it's a very good point. But I mean, <laughs> or, or, or fundamentally, do we just say, guys, we've just got to accept that McLaren aren't the force we think of, you know, us 30 pluses. We've just got to accept this kind of new reality where McLaren are very much on, on a good season, just going to be a midfield team and, and a, a customer team is probably where they should be right now unless something dramatic changes. I don't think the long-term future for McLaren would be as a customer. And that's why I, I find myself scratching my head thinking, okay, I'm sure the engineers are saying, look, let's get a Renault in the back of the car. It'll be three quarters of a second faster per lap and it'll be more reliable. And look what, you know, our simulations suggest we would then be, you know, so many places further forward. And look, we could get podiums and Really? Is that what McLaren wants? An outside shot at a podium? Like, yeah. do they want to be the equivalent of Williams picking up a, a, a tidbit podium if you're lucky, if three cars in front of you fall out? Because that's the position they're going to be in. That isn't a long-term solution. Okay. Uh, Matt, if you've forgiven me, I know you had some questions for Peter lined up. Yeah, I did. And the the first of which is, are we seeing uh, maybe behind the scenes at McLaren some disagreements? creeping out uh, with with uh, we like Honda. I mean, I know even at Monza, Alonso admitted that the latest iteration of the Honda engine was definitely a step up. But it's important to remember that Zach Brown is just an employee of McLaren, that the real power behind the throne was the other person engaged in that battle with Ron Dennis, Mansoor OJ. And OJ, if I'm not mistaken, is part French. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah. And so suddenly here's Renault. Uh, being in the mix but i'm just confused could we see that and could also um that be behind the really weird statement that alonso when he parked his car in spa and then they said there was nothing wrong with it that they could find this too was an intriguing wrinkle and i'd be curious to get your take on it just with regards to um alonso at spa 
My first thoughts on that were, um, for those with an old memory on this, do you remember that year when Nigel Mansell was racing IndyCar for the second year, 1994? No, I'm too young, Peter, but you crack on. You inform us young'uns. <laughs> okay, well, Mansell won the IndyCar Championship at his first attempt in 1993. In 1994, um, the chassis, the Lola chassis, was dire. Um, the engine was an awful lot better um, before Cosworth. They were comprehensively outclassed. Um, that was the year in 94. Mansell started coming back to F1 on occasional guest races. So he'd come over, he did the French Grand Prix. He was racing with Damon Hill and taking on Michael Schumacher. Several races after that, you could tell um, Mansell lost his love for what was then IndyCar. He walked away from several races. He was way outside of the points. He knew he wasn't going to go anyway. He wasn't going to score points, no chance to win. And he parked up. That is, as we know, the cardinal sin. You don't park a vehicle, even if, you know, you're way out of the points. You stay in. That's the whole point of motor racing. Wait a minute, even if you're 11th? (laughs) But I found that an interesting parallel with Alonso, where clearly the only competitive race he's had is in IndyCar, and has his heart fallen out of trundling around in a McLaren, um, being passed for sport by um, the rest of the grid. Uh, and I just thought, this is someone who's just thought, I've had enough of this. I'm done. Um, I want to get the next plane out of here. Um, and that, that's what Spa looked to me to be. Um, he just, and let's face it, you've then got the ammunition. Oh, look, both cars failed to finish. Yeah. And it's interesting with Alonso. I think it's also the manner in which he's losing the places because I think if he was at the moment just stuck in a slow car, for example, um, a Toro Rosso, or a Force India battling in the best of the rest, you would still see him fighting competitively through the field. The fact is, with the McLaren, is he can be racing people, then they get to a straight, and he is just breezed by. Or he gets a fantastic start, he's been getting great starts, and then slowly goes backwards through the field. So it might not just be that he's not winning, it might be that he can't even be competitive, kind of on track uh, with the car, but uh, anyway, I've lost. Uh, I've lost where I was going. Matt, uh, was your ownership question satisfied? Well, yeah, just to the extent that might explain why we get some of the little whiplash between what Zach is saying and then what he says the following week, and that there may not be agreement even amongst the team as to what's really best at this point. Although I think longtime Alonso watchers would be certain that if Alonso wants Renault in and Honda out, McLaren should by all means do the exact opposite if they wish to be successful. <laughs> I, I think actually you, you put the nail, you hit the nail on the head there, making the point that there's no point um, making massive long-term decisions based on the, the for the good of Fernando Alonso's career. Um, you know, it's it's such a mercurial mercurial character. We've seen potentially that he's walking away from races. Would you want to enter into a relationship with a new engine manufacturer just to keep Fernando Alonso? I, I don't think so. You know, if he's the main one pushing for Renault, is that a reason to walk away? Particularly when, and you, this is the bit of the other part of the deal that I think looks really bad for McLaren, is they're saying, what if you put the engine in the back of the Toro Rosso, they tool around midfield and then start to improve towards the end of 2018. That engine then goes into a Red Bull in 2019, and you've got Christian Horner sat there reaping the rewards of all the hard investment and pain that McLaren put themselves through for three years. Um, in the meantime, you're sat there, probably now in your Renault engine, McLaren, being passed by a Honda-powered Red Bull. What, what's the good part of that deal, even if you've got Fernando Alonso still being annoyed driving your car around? Well, there's 
possibly no good point to it, but it just occurred to me, uh, who exactly manages Alonso again? It's not still Flavio <laughs> Briatore, is it? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And is he or is he not also really tied up with Renault? I mean, this is this is just the more we talk about it, the more fascinated I get by all the, the, the strategic ins and outs that might be at play here. But I think you're right. And we actually discussed this a bit uh, with, with Summers. It just does not seem like a lot of upside for McLaren to switch to Renault at this particular time and potentially a whole lot of downside. Hmm. Indeed. It, what worries me is the, the lack of a long-term strategic plan in all this. You could see when Ron signed McLaren to Honda, you thought, okay, there's going to be a hell of a lot of pain here, but you end up in a good relationship with your um, engine manufacturer on a works deal. You can see the, the long-term gain. It's just taken a hell of a long time to try and get anywhere with it. But I can't see, I can't see the sunlit uplands of a, of a customer deal with Renault by any stretch. Okay, so let's. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry, Pete. I'm just going to interrupt you there because I want to get to the scandal. This is what we want to do. We want we want to find out <laughs> if there's going to be any drama, Peter. Uh-huh. Uh, do we think there is going to be some kind of court case where McLaren and Honda argue about what has just happened and whether anybody owes anybody else something? What's your gut? Um, would we get a court case? Two questions to answer out of that. One is that any contract will have dispute resolution. Um, clauses in there. So that would mean that before you end up going to litigation, you have to try things like mediation or arbitration um, to settle any um, financial issues. And who knows, there could be clawback in here that says that if the contract is cancelled by McLaren, they have to pay back all of the hundreds of millions that they've received in 2017 from Honda. I'm being hypothetical here, of course. That would hurt. It's a lot of money. But wouldn't you know, the idea of a partnership is there have to, has to be give and take on both sides. So um, it's not as though um, you're going to be able to walk away without there being a penalty of some sort. And I'm in, you know, so there will be clauses in there that would try and deal with this to stop it going to court because, and, and two things on court as well, ordinarily you get a choice of jurisdiction in contracts. So we have Honda in Japan, we have McLaren in the UK, there will be a clause in that contract that says that if push came to shove and it came to litigation, uh, you would have to name the jurisdiction where that litigation would take place. Now, you would presume, given the uh, reputation of the law of England and Wales internationally, which means so many international issues get resolved in the High Court in London, you would expect a choice of jurisdiction of the UK. But was a choice of jurisdiction in Japan uh, Honda's price for saying we give you the hundreds of millions of dollars, we we pay for Fernando Alonso's salary in its entirety, which is what they have been doing. But um, you know, uh, in return, we want a choice of jurisdiction in Japan. Thank you very much. That, for example, could have been um, you know that the give and take at the point where this was negotiated, and Ron thought, yes, you can have it because I don't think that will happen. This relationship will be fantastic. So you never know what the horse trading may have been when this deal was negotiated. Interesting. Uh, we talk about you know the differences in culture because I know you said your wife might have some insight on that, but presumably you're like me and you have to listen to every crushing detail of her day, so you'll probably know as well. But I'll just answer the the chat room. Josh Covey, yes, this is a single malt. It's a Talisker because it was my birthday yesterday. Thank you very much. No, I'm I'm not as young as I look. I have I just have a painting in the attic. Uh, but Peter, <laughs> what, what do you think of all this talk where people have said? 
it is the Japanese culture to not take outside help. It is the Japanese culture to be stubborn, to have this samurai mentality. Um, it's kind of a little bit, you know, it's bordering on, uh, what do you call it? National stereotypes, really? Is that really, surely all multinational companies, you know, are kind, a little immune to those kind of very narrow cultural biases? Yeah, I, I think that to a certain extent has been overplayed a bit. I mean, certainly they have, they followed this certain strategy in terms of want, not wanting to take help, not recruiting uh, any engineers from Europe, um, any of the other manufacturers. They very much wanted to do it the Honda way. That worked for them in the 1980s. It worked in the early 90s, um, but it hasn't worked since. And, you know, we, we saw the mess they got into in the mid 2000s and the mess they've got into now. Um, but what I think we do have to bear in mind is that um, honor and respect is a large part of the culture there. And I think we have to then look at how they have been treated again by McLaren. Exactly. <laughs> oh no if you laugh that gives away i was doing something on the live stream <laughs> uh, but anyway yeah so so they will have taken this insult um are you saying they'll have taken this insult personally uh possibly more so than you know if we were looking at um this being with mercedes or um another manufacturer um they would they would have thrown back as good as they got but you kind of get the impression that honda has been very respectful while they are still in the partnership and while they are still um, adhering to their contractual obligations, but they'll be sat there thinking and they'll be remembering all of this. Uh, and it will get to the point that they will not be very happy at how this is terminated. And that may lead elements of the Honda board to think, well, I think we need to therefore make sure we are properly recompensed under our, con- our, our contract. So therefore, when it comes to the end of a contract, it's still a negotiation sometimes. And if there's goodwill on each side, no, you get things resolved easily. If there isn't goodwill, yeah. This is where it can get messy. And again, I fear for McLaren in that case. But look, between you, me, the live stream and 5,000 or so listeners, Honda have been dire. I mean, they've got very little legs to stand on when they say, oh, how come they said mean stuff about us? Because your engine was terrible and has dragged our racing team's reputation through the mud for three seasons, surely that's got to play a factor in any element of, oh, they were a bit mean to us. But we don't know for sure that, um, I mean, we, we've heard from, uh, this was finally confirmed by Christian Horner on Sky F1 the other week. He said, oh, um, Ron Dennis exercised his veto to stop us getting an engine. We don't know if that veto was exercised elsewhere. From the very beginning on this, I've always thought if they had had at least one or two other teams all working together, it would have really helped to keep the development going was it mclaren's insistence on you stick exclusively to us that has meant it's taken them so far with such a small amount of data to get there yeah and and along those lines uh, let's just even go back to the initial size zero concept which is very much a mclaren concept and very much a ron dennis conceit as they'd hired peter Pedromo away from red bull and away from newey he was the chief assistant to newey at red bull Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And that size zero concept and what it resulted in Honda doing design-wise under the first two years of the regulations just crippled them. There was nothing they were ever going to be able to do to make that engine competitive until the regulations opened up this year. Mm. Yeah. So uh, we've taken a, a lot of your time here, Peter. I know that you had some interesting thoughts about the Halo. Uh, I, I should have learned by now that every topic you think is going to take or 10 or 15 minutes uh, ends up running to 35 minutes. But, you know, it's all fascinating stuff. Um, do you have time to chat about the Halo now or would you like to jump back on a, another stream sometime? That is an, entirely up to you. Um, I'm more than happy to, to jump into Halo now because I think it, it's quite relevant, or, or, but it's up, up to you. I've just seen Matt's bright blue eyes sparkle to life. Uh, Matt, I'll let you kind of run from here, but what we're talking about really is, are the FIA liable, as they claim, now that they've identified a problem, they kind of have to do it, Matt? Yeah, and, and this has been their uh, big argument all along is that even if they don't like it, now we know about it. If we don't do something legally, we are liable. And and I know that not everybody has agreed with that. Um, and I would certainly like to just state up front that most of the people who are not as on board with it, it's not an aesthetic thing. It's not a design thing. It really is just uh, what what are we talking about even when we talk about safety. But that being the case, the FIA says, Clearly, this is for safety, and now we know about it, we have to do it. The question is, from a legal point of view, is that always the case? Well, I, I think it's, it, it's a very um, interesting question. And let's, let's put it this way. Um, people are concerned. The FIA is, is clearly concerned with regards to the liability issue. Um, I think the um, litigation that seemed to hang over the head of uh, Mana Marussia, um, it's, it's um, sort of... That the winding up there, uh, one of the, apparently one of the reasons that no buyer could be found was they were worried about claims arising from um, the death of Jules Bianchi, um, which is a massive shame if that is one of the reasons why the team um, didn't continue. But when we then look at the issue, well, could you have liability over, oh, we knew that Halo could have made a difference, then we didn't do anything? Possibly, if you didn't have any evidence to refute it. And that's a very big thing. Now, Joe turned around on his recent podcast and said that the halo um, 
wouldn't have made any difference to any accident in F1 for the last 30 years. And you would have had to go back to a few accidents in the 1970s where it might have made a difference. Accidents in IndyCar uh, and, and Henry Surtees, they weren't in Formula One. Yes, Halo could have made a difference there. But if we're looking at Formula One, it's not going to have made much difference over the last several decades. If you had some statistical analysis and evidence to show that Halo wouldn't actually make much difference, you could then stand behind that and say, this is our reason for not having it. In the absence of that, and with only a couple of bits of evidence from crash tests with tires being fired at a car with a halo fitted to it that say, oh, it might have made a difference, that's all they've got. That's therefore their rationale for adopting it at the moment. So I wonder from a point of law point of view, and how far does it how far does it go that you have to keep kind of chasing things as they happen and chasing consequences? If you remember, there was a reporter who got hit with a tyre and then briefly everybody in the pit lane had to wear head protection. I can't remember whether that's still still going. But don't we get into the danger where every time there is a low probability event, we end up spending a lot of time and money dealing with, like we've done it after the horse has bolted. So we end up protecting against hundreds and hundreds of low probability events that might not ever happen again. At what point do you say enough's enough? I think it's enough's enough when you can actually evidentially prove to the contrary. Now, give you one example. 1994, um, there was an accident on the start grid at San Marino. Um, JJ Leto's Benetton was um, hit by another vehicle. Tires went bouncing into the pit lane. And as a result, um, there was a major issue, uh, major, you know, major issues. And they now said, right, during the race, teams will watch the race from inside the garage rather than being on the standing on the in the pit lane as they used to with, if you remember, cars going at full speed, not speed limited. Now, subsequently, we've had accidents where wheels have gone astray in pit lane. Mechanics have been hit. Um, press camera people have been hit. So you can see there has been a reason to say, actually, yeah, you should watch the race from in the pit and you leave the pit lane empty and you only come out to service a car. Um, if there had been no other incidents in the 20 years since, you could argue, well, actually, hmm, maybe they should be stood out in the pit lane. Do we need to have the speed limit down to such a level? So it's a matter of where the evidence ends up um, Bridget putting us. And in the absence of any clear evidence with regards to Halo, that's why I can't help but think if you had some clear evidence and statistical analysis to show actually this wouldn't actually necessarily make much of a difference, you'd be able to back up and evidence your position based on that. Well, I, I'm, I'm sensing that you're making the case to not have the halo. Um, do you have a reason or a motivation why, if I'm correct, that you don't want it? <sighs> um, well, just, just as a Formula One fan, I can't help but look at it and think it isn't the best looking um, thing in the world, I'll be honest. Um, and uh, when we've had this big push for, in theory, better looking cars, faster cars this year, um, I've got a great deal of sympathy for Joe Sayward's position of why should we then put Dame Edna Emperor's glasses on the front of it? <laughs> I didn't catch Joe saying that. I tell Joe from now on he has to save his best jokes for this podcast. <laughs> Matt? Yeah, I actually do have a question about that. Um, since it's the FIA that is promulgating these rules, is it a case then that they need to be concerned about what the French law is? And I know you're English, but would you be aware, are there differences that might result in them having to do it this way? Whereas if they were uh, potentially located or headquartered in another country, that might not be so much the case. Okay, there are a couple of big differences there, uh, and you're quite right in that in France, uh, the law is based on something called the Napoleonic Code, which is a um, statute-based law. 
So it's all passed by their parliament. In the UK, we have common law, so it's all based on loads and loads of cases going back over many centuries, um, which is a very different way of um, approaching your legal systems. Um, there may well be, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a lawyer in England and Wales, um, and I'm not versed in the issues around um, liability in France, but um, from, from a common law perspective, and the US is, of course, the, the, the same basis, um, you're able to say you look from common law, looking at evidence, looking at cases, looking at things to back it up. You can then argue a position either way. It is a little bit more cut and dried with regards to um, the law, with regards to uh, to it being in France. But in turn, I don't think it is necessarily the case that French law then applies to every single FIA sporting event around the world. So, for example, when um, the uh, after the uh, death of Ayrton Senna, uh, the uh, it was the Italian authorities that investigated that case under Italian law. Um, in the Italian courts, and that case was brought by the Italian authorities and rolled on for several years after the actual um, events in 1994. Right, and and here too, we're also starting to dance around uh, criminal versus civil liability because isn't the Bianchi case is that not taking place in France versus uh, it was investigated in Japan? Uh. I, I must admit, I'm, I'm not entirely up to speed on the nuts and bolts around that, but I can imagine that given um, his nationality and the fact it would be his his estate that would then be pursuing it, then yes, that would be um, under uh, under French law, I would presume. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to defend the halo, or uh, I, I'm I'm trying to be as neutral as I can be about it. But having spent some time looking at it, I, I do tend to agree with you. I don't feel like the FIA has statistically made a great case. They they are never ones to release lots of evidence, even if they might have it. And it and it frustrates those of us who would like to see these numbers. The only stuff I've ever seen indicates that there are other kinds of accidents that might should be taking precedent in terms of actually uh, de- uh, drivers being injured in them, and they they tend to be very specific. Um, so, so what else could be behind this then? Is, is it is it really just you think the um, just the optics of it as much as anything else? Uh, yes, I think it's because they are worried about um, after having commissioned research and the outcome was you need to have head protection. It's then well, how do we justify not having it? So I've outlined um, today how I think you could go about doing that, but in the absence of that, they're very much. Uh, focused on well this is what we have this is what we've done therefore we have to do it if we don't do it um we're hanging ourselves out to dry if there is a freak accident and someone is injured or killed very interesting peter thank you so much for giving up uh, so much of your time i actually said to you 20 minutes uh, originally but hey i mean if you've got uh, topics you think you could bring to Miss apex podcast you'd be more than welcome to jump back on and and uh, try and take apart some legalese for us more than happy to. <laughs> uh, now you are you do other podcasts, presumably on law. Yes, <laughs> and and what are they? Uh, maybe our listeners might be interested in such things. Sure. Um, well, at the moment, uh, I'm actually contributing to quite an interesting podcast that um, I do with a uh, legal tech journalist called uh, Frederick Svard, and he's based in uh, Stockholm, and uh, it's basically called the Legal Tech se uh podcast um, but if people want to get in touch with me on twitter which is at digital law uk you'll be able to then see uh new podcast episodes as they come up um on the uh on the twitter feed and i also share it through facebook so if you go to facebook.com forward slash digital law uk 
Um, you can also have the occasional uh, legal story in your Facebook feed. But it's quite interesting stuff about um, big data and technology and um, how that's going to be regulated in future and um, some of the issues around privacy and how your data is stored on things like uh, Facebook and uh, online. So uh, it's not necessarily dry legal stuff. And indeed, I actually do a lot of going around and training law firms on this stuff. So it's stuff that hopefully you might find interesting. If you're interested in tech in Formula One, I think tech um, in uh, in the, the wider economy is just as interesting. Wow. Well, I'm not just going to take <laughs> your word for it. I am going to check it out. And I've just thought of something we might like to chat with you in the future about is Liberty Media's changing attitude towards social media and what the drivers can and can't do. I think that's definitely a, a topic that people would love to, to dive deep into. And that's been an interesting shift this year from the uh, the previous position. Um, another possible thing we could talk about in future, which I think could be quite interesting, is the use of increasingly of uh, computer aided design now in uh, in chassis. And I had quite an interesting conversation with Christian Horner at an event last year. Wow, um, on you get to talk to people was... like that. Yeah, yeah. So you you get to talk to Christian Horner. You make loads yes. of money from being a super super duper lawyer, and you live in Sheffield. It's it's Yorkshire. It's you know the this is God's own country. <laughs> Fair enough. We can argue about that another time. Peter Wright, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to get you back very soon. Thank you. Well, Matt, wasn't that fascinating to get someone who knows what they're talking about when we are talking about this stuff, and you know, not just wildly speculating, but putting it in some context. Yes, yes, indeed. Although I'm devastated you didn't let me ask him my libel and slander question. Well, we have run 48 minutes and I did want to chat to you a little bit because, you know, kind of miss you, man. I mean, however amazing it was that we've been able to put out all these shows this week, the fact remains is you didn't do the live stream with me. You couldn't come on with Joe with me. And we were recording two podcasts at the same time, producing two podcasts at the same time uh Wafflecast with Summers and Inside F1 with Joe. I was really, really excited that we had these two shows going and then you jumped on the live stream afterwards as well. Yeah. No, I, I, I was when when you when you said when I saw the Joe thing pop up, I was like, oh really? Because I've already set up the Summers thing and then I was like, well hey, that's actually kind of great. And it's uh, going to be great for the listeners and great for the show. So yeah. And I and I like now that as far as this production trio we've got going on. I, I produce shows, obviously, regularly. Chris Stevens has jumped in and produced shows when I've not been available. And, and now we've got you doing the Patreon-funded trumpet time. It feels like we've added a bit of strength uh, and depth. And ultimately, that will be the thing that will make this podcast survive because when life changes, we have some backup and some insurance that will keep this fantastic community going. Uh, don't tell me that. You mean life changes? I wouldn't know anything about that. Well, who knows how long my wife will tolerate me disappearing into a shed, drinking fine single malt whiskies and talking to internet strangers. Uh, I, I say g give her one evening back and then she'll uh, immediately be happy for you to be gone again. So I must say a, hey, hang on a minute. I just caught what you said there. My company's amazing. <laughs> no, she'll be dying to have me back. Uh, but I really want to say, uh, just a reminder, the reason Matt can take the time to produce those waffle casts and has bought the equipment in order to be able to do so is because we put an appeal out saying if you would like matt to do a separate production or i'm not sitting there tapping my watch and telling him like today that's enough waffle matt let's get on with the subject matter uh if you wanted to listen to matt drill down into topics please contribute on patreon if we hit this target which we set and we achieved 
then we would do it. And that's why it's there. That's the only reason it's there. You guys made it happen. So thank you very much to you. Um, Matt and I just came to a, um, an agreement now, which is just now a percentage of all Patreon funds go to Matt. So if you want to support us on Patreon, please go to patreon.com and search for Missed Apex Podcast. Um, we see it as a tip jar. We see it as a huge morale boost whenever you guys uh, choose to donate. And uh, it gives us kind of the moral authority, if you like. Am I saying that right, Matt? It's like a moral mandate to keep churning out shows. Yeah, it is. I mean, because there there's an audience and a demand for it. In fact, I think some people have uh, somehow missed the podcast that we just released. Was it last night with Summers on it? Because uh, Baja in the chat was asking about when we were going to hear it. But it's, it's on up, the feed now. Online. Yeah. It's on the, and, and generally the best way to find shows is to go to mistapexpodcast.com. The latest show will always be on there. If you then click on episodes and main show, you'll see them latest to not latest. Absolutely. But, but it is, it, it, this is a community that has grown spontaneously and thanks to your careful curation and, and everybody's hard work. And we continually we find we find new people to come on the show. We we find and and not just from outside, but from inside our own community. And it's it's been a fantastic thing to watch, and I, it gives me great hope. Okay, and and it's worth pointing out that two of our panelists were just starting out as not just, but were listeners that just got engaged in the community and came forward to help us with stuff and have ended up as panelists on the show. Um, and, and that's, you know, the kind of openness that we've been going for. And um, I think I can stop waffling about that now. Oh, no. Big shout out to Felix Bo Bowen. I don't actually know how to pronounce his name, but he's Swedish or Dutch or something. And he just looked at my website and said, do you know what? It's not that good. I'm just going to come in. I'm a web developer and I'm just going to do it for you. And that reason that site works now is because Felix just does everything. So many, many thanks to him. Uh, Matt, we can actually talk about a bit of F1 while we've got some time. What an original idea. Well, Singapore, Matt, is what I want to talk to you about. Now, everyone is saying this is going to be Ferrari's track and everyone's kind of relishing and saying, oh yeah, Mercedes might have won on the two most power dependent tracks, uh, but they are going to struggle around Singapore. Ferrari are going to take uh, Mercedes to the cleaners. There's two big wrinkles in that argument as far as I can see. A, no one's factoring Red Bull in this equation and Red Bull being ahead of both of them is bad for Ferrari. And B, Singapore is not hungry and it's not Monaco. There's a lot of long straights in Singapore as well. But the amount of time on full throttle, which is I think where Mercedes sees its biggest advantage, isn't nearly as high. Uh, I have not yet researched that as we have a weekend off, as it were. But the the differences with the number of corners and the speed of the corners really is where you shake out the difference between the two basic chassis designs. And as such, it may very well be that though that those longer stretches are where Red Bull are going to have a little more issues. But they were pretty surprising. They were, especially in the dry. And yeah, if Ferrari don't get a tarot package right, then you could absolutely see them stepping up to the plate and uh, taking taking some podiums away from some people. Yeah, and of course, that's crucial because the biggest thing that could go wrong for Lewis Hamilton's championship is Sebastian Vettel being first and him being second. 
Obviously, it could be worse than that. But that seven-point gap at the front is crucial. And if the Red Bulls take away that gap, obviously, the gap between third and fourth is a lot less harsh on the championship. Yeah, worst case scenario for uh, Mercedes, or not even for Mercedes, because I think Mercedes are pretty much a lock on the constructors, unless all their engines start blowing up the whole last part of the season. But for the Drivers' Championship, if you're Lewis, Vettel in in first place is the worst thing, is is what you want to avoid at all costs, because that's where the biggest points gap exists. See, even the chat room, you know, um, Lawrence is saying Merck will be nowhere, Merck will be thrashed. I, I just can't see it. I can't see how a team goes from being absolutely dominant to being completely nowhere. Now, I know we've had races this season where Mercedes have been nowhere due to setup, but assuming they can turn up and set their car up properly, they're going to be racing Ferrari. This is not going to be Mercedes in 10th, for example. Well, no, but it, it has happened before that Mercedes has been exceedingly dominant and then shown up to Singapore and really struggled. So it's not out of the question. What makes me think that that's not really going to be the case is how much they've been bad mouthing their potential performance in Singapore. I think I think they are trying to lower expectations, but I I don't think it will be as bad as all that. The question is, will uh, Ricardo or Verstappen or the pair of them be able to get in between Vettel and Lewis? Well, obviously, Verstappen will have to finish a race, which is pretty much a coin toy-co- uh, cost. A, a, a coin toss. <laughs> Let's go for coin toss. It is because his reliability has been so bad. Um, but Ricciardo, we know he loves this track. We've seen him hunting down people on this track before. Oh, Ricciardo just loves to pass people. It, it, it doesn't matter how unlikely it is. Just ask Kimi Raikkonen. He is um, perhaps next to Lewis. I think the best overtaker on the circuit right now. And uh, James is saying, in fact, no, sorry, it's not James. Oh, someone's saying qualifying is very vital in Singapore. It is, and you don't get the most overtaking. But in my head, I don't know if this is right, it feels like one of the longer races of the season, and it always feels epic. And I don't think we've had many races where something hasn't happened, like a safety car, to mix things up. Yeah, I think there's a a couple of the corners uh, do tend to bring cars together. And so safety cars are... Pretty inevitable in Singapore, I think, especially if you've got Perez and Ocon on the same track. <laughs> oh, we've not really had a chance to discuss, uh, you know, what happened be- between Perez and, and Ocon. Obviously, you're going to keep. Oh, no, we did. Yeah, we did. We did. I tried to defend Perez in Spa, didn't I? I, I put up a valiant effort. Yeah, yeah, you did. And 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 I and to be fair, again, I think the team just miscalculated and and how they. And, and when they brought Ocon in, and that just left them too close together. And then drivers will be drivers, you know? Yeah, so but the, the problem is they're going to keep being together for the rest of the season. I honestly think now, I've, I've sort of turned around a bit. I, I thought that this was going to be, Perez was going to be able to ride this storm. Now I can see him ending the season battered with a reputation that won't recover. So his dream, he still thinks he's going to be F1 champ. And I think that dream is going to be very much in tatters by the end of this year. It's going to take several unlikely events to put him into a car where he could actually win a championship. He is a very good driver. But the sad fact is Ocon is a rookie and he just placed six at Monza after an epic qualifying in the wet. And, you know, there it is. You can't buy that. You can't beat that, even if you have more points at the end of the season. So you're you're going firmly for a Ferrari win. I'm going to go 
pound for pound, I'll match whatever bet you want. Mercedes are going to win in Singapore. I think Ferrari, any mistake at all, and the other, they're not, they're not miles ahead. And Raikkonen won't be in the top two. Guaranteed, Raikkonen is not in the top two at the end of Sunday's race. Well, I'm not so sure I'd take you up on the Raikkonen bet, although it would be fun to see you lose that. You but, hang on a minute. See, you think Raikkonen is going to finish in the top two in Singapore? Not a chance. I, I said it would be fun to see you lose that, as in I would love to see Raikkonen really earn and win a podium. Uh, but that's that's just me. Uh, no, I, I don't think Mercedes will win. But I'm surprised that you didn't say Red Bull, because to me, that would be the interesting bet. If Ferrari don't get their arrow right, then I think you really do have to look at Red Bull and Ricardo as being the man to get the job done. Well, I'll tell you what, as someone who increasingly will struggle to have any semblance of neutrality as we come into the run-in of a very exciting championship, obviously I am cheering on Lewis Hamilton 100% to win the title. I believe he now has a number two. He now has a rear gunner. I, I mean, yeah, Joe disagreed with me a little bit. But Bottas literally laid out Lewis Hamilton's number one winning cap for him, in front of him, to put on. Bottas did not challenge for the win. They both turned their engines down at the same time. Bottas is rear-gunning to the end of the season. See, I'm going to disagree with you, because when they played PlayStation, Bottas was beating Lewis. So I don't think he's laying down and rolling over by any stretch of the imagination. But I think the harsh realities of being brand new to the Mercedes team after Lewis has been embedded in it so long are simply not going to play to his favor and to his strengths. And, and you know, I'll mention the tires thing again, but Lewis is, is, is a magician with the tires. He gets them turned on more often in more circumstances than Botas does, and that gives him a big advantage. And only was it maybe... One or two races this year, have we really seen the advantage in Valtteri's court? And as it goes forward, I think I think I think Bottas will narrow it. But Lewis has been in the team too long, and and Lewis is the team's number one, uh, whether they'll admit it or not. From a sporting point of yeah. view, from a marketing point of view, from a publicity point of view, Lewis is the big dog, and that subtly affects a whole host of decisions to get made for a variety of different reasons. And I think what Bottas has done absolutely to his favor is he's shown that if Lewis is lost, he will pick up the reins and go, and it's not a problem. He's okay. not He's not going to be driving into bridges like Giovinazzi. So let's talk. I thought Giovinazzi's job was to drive into bridges. I thought that was, he tested barriers. It was, is that not his job? Wow, then he's terrible. Uh, no, let's let's uh, separate the two things. Let's talk about the difference between is Bottas a good driver in general? Would Bottas be a good team leader? That's one argument. The other argument is, given the context of this season and the fact that this is Lewis Hamilton's car, as you say, he is playing rear gunner now. I think Mercedes are smart. Behind closed doors, they have said, uh, Bottas, you're number two, you're rear gunner. There's been no real reason to declare and announce that yet. The the time will come when Lewis Hamilton is struggling on a set of tyres and Bottas has come through the field or that Bottas is ahead and we have to do a Vettel, Raikkonen style. Oh, look, he managed to somehow overtake. Uh, and that will be the test. Uh, and Mercedes aren't being smart. There's no reason to announce it. However, it will become very obvious when one of those scenarios comes about. Yeah, well, I would say the only time we're ever really going to hear about it 
is if we see a situation like where Vettel's steering was whack and Raikkonen wasn't let past him. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and, and that just that made it clear, even without team orders, because there was Raikkonen's radio message that just never got answered. But I'm not sure that I think it would be unlikely to see them in a, in a spot where if Lewis didn't get past Botas, he was going to lose the, the championship. And I think that's the only time you would ever get an inkling from Mercedes that that's what's really going on. Chat room suggesting I'm going to be very disappointed this race. Well, not really, because I've had my expectations managed. I will be disappointed if it is Vettel first and Lewis Hamilton second or further back in the field. I think that there are other scenarios here that that can that can make me happy. A damage limitation would be losing less than seven points in the championship would make me reasonably satisfied given how much everyone thinks Ferrari are going to thump Mercedes. Yeah, I mean, so ideal scenario for you would be would be Ricardo Vettel Hamilton in that order. Sure, and yeah. That would be delightful. I think we'd all be pretty happy to see that, to be honest. How can you not like Ricardo? Yeah, no, he's fine. But the thing is, well, if you do get not the fastest car out the front in Singapore, uh, as Baha Matiamat is pointing out. No, is that right? No, it's Renmar. Hello, Renmar. Welcome to the chat room. Is pointing out that this is the sort of track where you can get a train behind a slower car. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and strategy will be, in- I'll be very curious to see uh, how long the tires are lasting and, and what the potential strategies are that Pirelli offer up as the fastest way around the track. Because uh, the tires are very different this year. And even with the added downforce, we've seen uh, fewer stops most places than we expected. All right, my friend. I am very much looking forward to Singapore. Uh, You know, you keep telling me you're busy, Matt. There are shows you can't make. Uh, Secretly, I think you're just saying you're busy. So you can concentrate on talking to uh, Summers without me telling you that the time is running out or that you are boring me. However, why don't you tell us what you really are up to that's keeping you so out of uh, out of my shows that I that I do, you know, uh, some of it is just family stuff. But I do happen to have a concert this weekend at the Tillis Center. If anybody's out and about on Long Island and looking for something to do, I am playing there. Then beyond that, I'm just uh, getting the last finishing touches put together on my crowdfunding site so that we can maybe get an album going. And where can people follow oh, you online? Sorry, Matt. <laughs> That's okay. Because you know, I know uh, that's what every motorsport fan wants. Because I know that's what every motorsport fan wants. Because I know that's what every motorsport fan wants. Jazz trumpet. And I, yes, you can find me <laughs> at Matt. Sorry, Matt. I think it's quite fun that we have dealt with what is essentially a two-second lag for the last three years reasonably successfully, haven't we? And it's only every now and then we get into the no-no after you, sir. Uh, yes, where can people follow you on Twitter? At Matt PT fifty five on the Twitters, where you can see my wife actually Twitter shame me for putting my child to bed too late on her first night of school. Oh dear, oh dear. Yes, I feared also my children wouldn't go to bed for the first night of school, so I put on my running shoes, I put them on my bicycles, and we just went out for forty five minutes until they were just sweaty, blobby masses, and then I stuck them in the bath, straight to sleep, lights out. Top tip. Take your children to the point of physical exhaustion and they might just sleep. Matt, I'm really looking forward to the Singapore 
Grand Prix and the rest of what has been a absolutely fantastic season. If nothing else, I am just enjoying being a Formula One fan this year. So join us for the Singapore Race Review, 8pm UK time. Until then, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. We are the law! You know, if we keep up this worrying trend of having subject matter experts on all the time, we're in serious danger of being taken seriously. Yeah, I know. It's kind of uh, amazingly scary. Oh, and I forgot to say, I haven't actually listened to your Tech Waffle cast yet. No, I'm sorry. All I did do was check the audio quality in the first five minutes, and I, I could not help but be incredibly jealous of the fact you put some sweet jazz under your intro and post-production. Great job, sir. Oh, well, thank you very much. It, it did take me a while to figure out the best way to get it done. And, and I had it just where I wanted it. And then I applied the compression after I mixed the tracks down. And I was like, oh, it might be too loud. It might be too loud. But I can't undo the thing now without going back another four hours of work. So Let I just the said, jazz well, roll. It. Hey, I'll tell you what. You uh, pointed out one comment of the week. A little bit earlier, so why don't we award an award? Yes, I, I apologize to the chat room. I got kind of distracted. Uh, but early on, I did spy a potential winner, if I can get it. Uh, Thank you to cool. Dominic Byrne for pointing out and putting in the chat room, forgetting something, Spanners. And I am sorry, by the way, that we sprung this live stream on Thursday and decided to make it Sunday's show, uh, which it does mean that if you're listening to this Sunday morning, there probably won't be an 8 p.m normal live cast but there will be for singapore the following 8 p.m so what comment of the week do we have yeah well entertainingly enough it is from dominic Byrne. an incentive to remind us and even though he spells his name with a y for this comment he might have very well spelled it with a u spanners instead of d shining could you give north korea their graphics back comment of the week All right, well, I'm upset now. He's referring to two things. Firstly, yes, the graphics in the background of the live stream are a tiny bit janky. And yes, you can see the glow of the lamp lamp I've had to put behind me to make the green screen work. But it's a work in progress. If there's anyone out there listening to this who uh, can provide me with a much better backdrop for zero money, I'd be very, very grateful. The second thing is you cannot abuse me for 18 months on this live stream telling me I've got a shiny fat face and then also have a go at me when I apply powder, okay? It's just it's just a little bit of pressed powder like this, just in the T-zones, to think that maybe you would all stop yelling at me for my shiny face. I can't help it. I'm a sweater, all right? There's no pleasing you people. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.